to close your mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellet. Today's guest, Dr. Joan Steininger, began the journey of mental performance when she started distance running. In the 80s, sports psychology and the mental game were not only stigmatized, the two were essentially not even being researched. The role of the brain on physical performance was such an underserved topic that Dr. Steininger couldn't even find anyone to mentor and supervise her PhD dissertation on marathon runners. In the early 80s, I did an internship when I was getting my PhD with a with the first clinical and sports psychologist with the track and field team for the Olympics. And um, so she, I did a full year with her and I got really interested in pursuing this as a psychologist. And back then, <laughs> very little to no people were talking about sports psychology. Um, and so I couldn't even find somebody to help me do a dissertation focused on marathon runners, which I tried to do initially. And so um, I stayed interested once I got my PhD and started seeing some athletes in the late 80s. And then um, I found that I really liked working with athletes. And so I um, started to have that as one of my specialties and really dove in much more in the early 90s when ASP was um, still a very young organization. As an ultramarathon runner, Dr. Steiniger was uniquely equipped to cover the mental struggles that arose during the process of running 100 miles. Now, technically, an ultramarathon is anything over 26.2 miles, but it's normally recognized as to span somewhere between 35 and 100. Dr. Steiniger found herself over the course of the longer form 24-hour runs. When she began using a heart rate monitor suggested by one of her coaches, she found that her times dropped dramatically. One year, I got a great coach that had me um, using my heart rate monitor, and all of a sudden, my time started dropping because I really wasn't running close to my full potential. And um, I went from mid-pack to front of the pack. Dr. Steiniger found that pacing herself against others, but especially against herself, helped push her forward. It actually is two things. It's when I was running a 50-mile American River, and I just had a good sense of myself that year. That was when I started using the heart rate monitor. I was running much faster. Um, my times were incredibly significantly faster. And I had gone up to a friend of mine who I said, well, Errol, I'm going to break eight and a half hours today. And he's like, well, Joan, you haven't even broken nine. I mean, aren't you kind of setting your sights too high? I said, no, you wait. Well, I ran it in 827. And so he never, ever disputed my predictions about my running again after that. Um, and then the next week, uh, a friend of mine, I was running a marathon that I was really vying to win, which I did. And that trail marathon and I was as an ultra runner I've been used to running lots of miles every weekend so another guy who had come in I don't know 15 or 20 minutes behind me at American River unbeknownst to me had his whole goal for that race was to beat me the marathon well he beat me by like 10 seconds something like 20 seconds 
And then, and I, and I happened to win that race. And then he apparently couldn't run for three weeks. He had pushed himself so hard. He was limping around and couldn't run a stitch. So it's funny back then, cause I didn't, he tells me all this, you know, like a couple months later and I'm, and you know, I thought, well, it was pretty courageous of him to admit he couldn't run a stitch for three weeks, but <laughs> what a dumb thing to do that he did to try to beat me just for that. <laughs> Although ultra running is an individual sport for all intents and purposes, Dr. Steiniger found that teaming up with similarly paced runners helped her stay mentally in the flow state. I had um, ran the Vermont 100 and I was like, I had worked out in the gym religiously for six months. I'd done tons of miles to repair. You know, I was like there and I went back to Vermont with, and so I had some male friends, we were all together doing it. And I didn't bring any crew or a pacer or anything. Um, I've always been pretty independent. So that wasn't necessarily difficult to do. But what happened is I um, was in a good mood all day. And, you know, stopped at an aid station, then went right away, because I've always learned in these long endurance things that you don't hang around at aid stations, um, because that could be the kiss of death for some people. Um, so what happened is I um, was in a good mood, and a guy who had been there from California, who's kind of a legend in ultra running, this guy named John Menninger, he shows up at mile 70 and says, I'm going to pace you. And I go, oh, because he never paced slower people um, and let alone women. So his fast male pacer dropped out and he goes, the reason I'm going to pace you is because I've never seen so somebody in such a good mood in a hundred mile race. <laughs> and so I was, since it was my first hundred and I, you know, he knew he was the expert at the time, or, you know, somebody really well versed in it, I did whatever he told me to do. You know, eat, I ate stuff I normally don't eat because I'm not a candy person, but I ate it. And um, so he said, we've got two goals. The first goal is we're going to get you well under 24 hours. And the second goal is I want you to beat five or six of the horses that were re running a concurrent horse race was going on or, you know, horse endurance event, I should say. And so at mile 93, for the first time, I got soup because I was kind of, my energy was dipping a little bit. And I sat down, drank the soup, got up. And he goes, that's good. Two and a half minutes. Now let's go. <laughs> and, and I was so glad he was there because Vermont, the end of the Vermont 100 is in very dense forest. So, you know, one of the things about running is I always like to kind of see around me, but at night in dense forest, <laughs> you don't see a lot of stuff around you. And I came in and it was, I don't know, 2317, I think. Um, and I, as I told you, I was so excited that I was like shaking my hands up and down and, you know, like I did it, I did it, I ran a hundred miles. <laughs> and this one woman, who'd been in ultra running for a while, just looked at me like I was crazy. And I thought, too bad. <laughs> I can't believe I did it. <laughs> in certain ways, I enjoyed pacing people just as much as I enjoyed 
running it myself because um, it was fun to help them, you know. And I think that pacers really, for big long races, need to be a very positive and encouraging kind of people. One of the interesting notes about ultra runners comes from a 1992 study published in The Sports Psychologist. It found that among 112 competitors in a 160-kilometer or 100-miler, participants were more competitive and positive with each other, but less win-oriented intrinsically. Additionally, goals related to finishing the race were rated as paramount, while goals related to a specific place or ranking were less so. Instead of looking at what they haven't done, or I've got all this to do, it's really much more helpful to think about all you've done and how much progress you're making. Like, I'm already a fourth done. Great. I'm already half done. And one of the things I did when I taught, I don't know if I told you, but I taught at the Western States training camp a couple years. Um, one of the things that came, I did was a visualization of the whole course with the three or 300 and some people that were at the, the meeting at the workshop that I was doing. And um, so what I did is I built in in this visualization going along the trail, the down, some down spots. So they didn't have the expectation that they would feel good and positive the whole way. Um, and, you know, things to do to get them out of the down spots um, in terms of, th particularly with thoughts. I think the thoughts are very powerful. And if we can really, if people can work with thoughts and turn the reframe negative ones to more positive ones, um, you know, that what they say, positive self-talk, that can make a big difference. And instead of looking at like legs or, you know, oh my God, they're so heavy. It's like, my legs are strong. I have strong legs. And, and another trick I would use and was teaching this to the workshop is it was in a movie actually years ago that was a takeoff on the Dipsy. And it, um, what that they did in that movie was the coach in that movie would always say, soar the hills and burn the downhills. So one of the things about hills is if you're thinking of your soaring, it's more a light kind of way of going up hills. And we don't think of burning the downhills. We think of, you know, soaring the downhills. But I think we get burning them means just giving it your all um, as one way to approach it. In a similar 2003 study published in the Journal of Applied Sports Psychology, also testing 100-mile racers, participants prioritized the experience as opposed to the finish line and were noticeably extroverted. As Dr. Steiniger was pursuing her higher education at the University of San Diego, the University of Laverne, and the California School of Professional Psychology, she began recognizing how few women were alongside her in her classes, her pro-women in sports advocacy, and at the end of the races with her. This spurred her first publication, a dive into how elite female athletes work together to boost themselves up in a male-dominated professional setting like sports. It's called Sisterhood in Sports, um, how females collaborate and compete. And people go, well, how they, can they be? Well, they can be on a team with it and be competing together competitively, but they can also be even on a cross-country team and still support each other. You know, I'm scoring points. When I ran one of my marathons in a pouring downpour, um, I was running for a team and there were five of us and we only needed three people to score. 
only two of us finished it. And so it was rather discouraging because individual sports back then were a lot different than they are now where there's a lot more sensitivity about team cohesion and a team getting together. And one of the things that I talked about is I think um, there was a female brain, the book that came out and that in certain ways, men's brains and women's are different, not huge, but enough to make a huge difference where relationships are primary for women in terms of what we talk about. And there had been research on somehow the thinking that we talked more. And then there was some studies done to disprove that. But the one thing all the studies agreed on back then was that women talk significantly more about relationships and their personal lives uh, than men do in sports or otherwise. And so the book, the first book was meant to kind of make all this um, normal because <laughs> the research was there and to um, acknowledge, start talking about the fact that women, um, coaching and working with women can be quite different. The success of that book, which took Dr. Steiniger two decades to conceptualize and put to print, was followed six years later in 2020. Her second book, Stand Up and Shout Out, Women's Fight for Equal Pay, Equal Rights and Equal Opportunities, was published as a testament to the work done since Title IX, while acknowledging the milestones yet to be met. There's not a lot of stuff written about women, particularly based on research, women in sports and research. Um, to back it up, really. And um, I actually entered five contests with the hope of winning something. And so it was rather shocking to me that I won something in every contest I entered. Um, and the sports one, co categories in these contests, I actually ended up being um, a gold medal winner in four of them, and then uh, a very nationally, uh, national and prestigious uh, book contest called Forward Reviews um, gave me an honorable mention, which they don't always do, in the women's studies category. Um, so it was, that's why <laughs> I ended up with five literary awards, because I, I uh, was just trying to win something. <laughs> Winning national book awards for her coverage of the inequities of women's sports gave Dr. Steiniger more of a platform to advocate for their time in the spotlight. Back when there was Title IX and there was girls' sports, 93% of girls' sports were coached by women. Now, it's 41% of girls' sports are coached by women because what's happened is the salaries have now become significant so then the men kind of apply and the white men i hate to, white men still have the upper hand when it comes to sports i mean 89 percent of um sports editors in this country are white men you know so that tells you a lot right there so when we see these little wins um they're still they're significant but it's frustrating i think that muffet mcgraw who was the coach the basketball coach for Notre Dame, who recently retired, said she's tired of this. Well, there's a woman in this for the first time. There's a woman in this for the first time. She says, 
I'm looking to the day when it's not such an anomaly and that we're embedded enough in leadership positions, particularly in sports. Sports is way worse in terms of leadership for women than actually the workplace. Gino Ariyama, who's a coach of um, UConn, when he was asked why there aren't more women coaching, his response was because they don't want to. His um, daughter is a professor at UConn and said immediately on text, walk it back, dad. And he got all kinds of trouble for that. But that's how ignorant, you know, white men, it's not that women don't want to coach. It's, they're not given the opportunity to coach. That's why the title of this current book, Stand Up and Shout Out, is because we need to stand up and shout out when there's obviously horrible inequities, like what happened with the Final Four situation. She also hopes to bring more attention to smaller initiatives, like those in her California region. One of the things that I really want to do is highlight different programs that are around the country for, for all cultures. Um, like there is a black women's sports foundation that I introduced in this last book that people don't really know about and they don't know in detail what they do. And they don't understand that the people running it were pretty, uh, much pioneers. And, um, so my goal is to find really what, first of all, discuss what advocacy is and particularly what advocacy for girls is and different ways we can give it for girls in sports and, uh, and find really effective programs, I think, to highlight and also the steps other people can take. You know, how can you help to advocate for girls in sports? Um, you know, can you go volunteer as a coach? Can you go like to like here in Marin? We have, I live in Marin, north of the Golden Gate uh, County, and we have a new program that a guy from Marin City, which is heavily African-American, um, started and his, the whole point of his program, Play Marin, is to get kids of all cultural backgrounds playing together and playing together at young ages so that when they're older, nobody's going, well, I can't be friends with you because you're this, or I can't be, you know, that they're just all kind of on an equal playing field. Um, and so his program is very valuable. And I think the more good examples we have of advocacy for, for BPOC people and for white people, um, the better we'll be, we'll off we'll be. When I asked Dr. Steiniger at what point we as women could feel as though our victories were covered with equally as fervent a response, she said. Oh, I think we're gonna have to make headlines for a long time. <laughs> I really do. And, and we're gonna have to um, really fight to make inroads. Um, like in coaching, uh, we have to fight more. People have to step up for leadership roles. Um, and we need to highlight the people that are doing things. That's why I want to write, write a book on advocacy because it's like, this is happening all over. Why don't some of these programs you could model after in some other part of the country, um, as long as you give them credit for modeling after them. But. Um, there's a lot being done, but it's not being actively talked about near as much as it needs to be. Now, as she brainstorms book number three, 
she's also looking at the work ahead of her. She was recently one of only 12 sports psychologists inducted into the prestigious rank of ASP Fellow in the year 2021. Being a fellow indicates that an individual has contributed distinction through significant contributions to academic and professional knowledge in sport and exercise psychology. Even the former president, a former president who wrote me a letter of endorsement said, you know, Joan, don't be disappointed um, and don't be surprised if they don't accept it. And so my whole contention had been, I'm probably not going to get it. I mean, my expectation was. And so when I did get it, I was shocked, quite frankly, <laughs> and surprised. And it made me feel like, okay, all this work I've done, much of it, certain amount of it pro bono is paid off. And um, I think that I do have expertise, particularly around female athletes but I have also expertise around other areas of sports um, psychology. And, and so to become an ASP fellow just means that people have recognized that. And that really is exciting. That's all for this episode of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellert. Dr. Steiniger was such a joy to have on. She's an icon in the field and I wish I could have posted our entire conversation. But you can listen to the entire interview, though, at our YouTube, Closer Mentality Uncensored. You can also follow Closer Mentality on Instagram and Twitter at Closer Mental for more content. Tune in next week when I bring on Q Williams to talk about whether or not football is really worth it. It's a great one. But until that time, see you next week. <music>